I became a priest because I believe in the church and I don't want the church to die. When the late iconic singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor became a priest, she was ordained in Ireland by Bishop Michael Cox from the breakaway Latin Tridentine sect. Well, I like Bishop Cox a lot. Um, He is as innocent as a lamb, but as wise as a serpent. So he's thought of as being this rebel. He actually is a very innocent man. He's a very honest and true priest and, you know, a servant of God in in the form of truth. Hello. Sorry, Michael, I'm a little late. You're all right. That would happen to a bishop. Come on, put a chair up there and... Thank you. Not only had Bishop Cox ordained Sinead O'Connor, but many years before this interview with Sinead, he became friends with the man at the centre of our story. Hello there. I am Bishop Michael Cox. And you were uh, Michael O'Shea's chaplain then? I, I was, yes. I'm Pavel Barter. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Runaway Joe. Episode 7 jailbreak. Bishop Cox knew Michael O'Shea since back in the mid-1970s when a mutual friend in Dublin had introduced them. From the moment I met the man, you know, he, he, he recognised my clergyman's status and we actually became friendly, you know, and his wife as well. Bishop Cox would visit Michael O'Shea at his stately home in Capard, sometimes just for a chat with O'Shea's German housekeeper, Erica Lotz, in her native German language. I used to visit her, that Darren, and we spoke in German because I, I was in Germany for two years. And so when Michael O'Shea was arrested in January 1985 and revealed to be Joe Maloney, Bishop Cox was shocked as was everyone who knew O'Shea. I got a phone call. That's Morris O'Callaghan, O'Shea's filmmaker associate. In 85, to say, could he meet me? It's a legal matter. I'm down in Dunleary, down at the Garda station. So I went down. He wanted to know, could I get him a lawyer to bail him out of a problem that he was in? When O'Callaghan arrived, the first thing O'Shea did was... Handed me the charge sheet, you see, and it, it was laid out that he was charged with murdering his wife and that his name was a completely different name. The name said Joseph Maloney. I just couldn't know what to believe, but then he asked me, would I know any senior counsel and so on? So I, I knew plenty of them, you see. So I said, look, Mick, this is not something that I specialise in, but I, I'll put you in touch with uh, some barristers in the law library. Was he calm? Was he panicked? No, very calm, inscrutable, like he kind of always was. Not panicked in any way, no, but kind of saying, hey, what do you think it is? I mean, that's that's complete nonsense. That was his attitude. The next person Joe Maloney called was his old friend, Desmond Fenning, from Dunleary, who in the early 1970s helped him sell his garage for an astronomical price to the local council. Pamela Fenning, Desmond's daughter. So my father and my brother went into the police station the following day and my father put up bail for him. And it was a large amount of bail, so it was kind of a big deal. According to the Garda arrest report, Sheila, Michael O'Shea's wife, also offered up bail, as did Vincent Chandler, Sheila's father. 
but bail was not granted. The authorities were worried that he might skip town, and Michael was taken to Mountjoy Prison, where he frantically began to try and call in favours from everyone he knew during his previous 18 years in Ireland. They asked me would I go in and talk to him in Mountjoy, which I, I did. Do you remember that? I went in and... I do. Yeah, I'll never forget it. Yeah. This is Pat Fitzsimons, whose father employed Joe when Joe first arrived in Ireland. Pat's here with his wife, Margaret. Were you worried, Margaret? I was worried. I was worried. I was like, you know, somebody in jail and Pat going in to visit somebody that had been arrested. What, what are your memories of that visit? There was a porter cabin. You know the main entrance to Mount Joy? There was a porter cabin. Fortunately, I don't. No, OK. There was a porter cabin outside and you sat in there and then you were called in and you went into the visiting room and you sat down. There was a big wide table and there was a kind of a barrier. But you could reach over and shake hands. He wasn't in a prison uniform because he was in remand, I think, at that stage. He was fairly calm. And uh, he asked me then, could I get something to say he was working for my father? Well, I said, Michael, I've, I look. And so I searched as much as, it, you know, my father had sold the company on. I found a wages book, but his name wasn't on it. Roderick Fanning, Desmond Fanning's son, was by now one of O'Shea's closest friends. Like most people who knew him, Rod found it impossible to believe that O'Shea could be guilty of what they were accusing him of, or that his name was really Joe Maloney. Rod would accompany O'Shea's wife, Sheila, and her father, Vincent Chandler, to the hearings in Dublin courts. Roderick was a great friend of theirs, and he would take her into the courts then and go into visit, visit um, and bring things in if they could. He got very cross, very annoyed about how Michael was being treated. So he, he was very much a, a supporter of he Michael. Was hugely supportive. And they had no feeling that he would have killed anybody. Everybody we knew who met Michael said, no way. He could not have killed his wife that way, but he would never have planned the poisoning that took place. We heard the same story from so many people who knew Joe. But when I heard the news that came out later about him, I was more than surprised, you know. It was a shock to everybody. Nobody had any idea. I couldn't believe it. When I heard he was up, I thought it was for fraud or something, you know. I couldn't actually believe it was for murder. Despite those closest to Joe in Ireland believing he couldn't have murdered his wife, he stayed in prison while his extradition to the US was being processed. Joe recruited a lawyer to appeal the extradition order but he also took matters into his own hands. Rochester Democrat and Herald, Irish prison officials moved Maloney to a maximum security cell in June after they uncovered a suspected jailbreak attempt that involved bribery, explosives, and a hidden key. Maloney might have offered up to $50,000 to a prison guard to smuggle explosives into Mountjoy Prison as part of that suspected jailbreak attempt, according to prison sources. When that jailbreak attempt didn't work, Joe Maloney tried something else. In those years, IRA prisoners in Northern Ireland had used hunger strikes in an effort to achieve political goals. Now, Joe tried a hunger strike of his own, 
in an effort, authorities feared, to break out of jail. Evening Press, August 9th, 1985. Wanted man on jail fast. A man wanted by United States police on a murder charge has gone on hunger strike in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin. For the next seven weeks, Joe Maloney steadfastly remained on hunger strike. Irish Press, September 24th, 1985. Prisoner on fast is weak. A man wanted by US federal authorities is dying in Mountjoy Jail, it was claimed last night. Joseph Michael Maloney, alias Michael O'Shea, is held in custody until his appeal against extradition to New York is heard in the High Court. Was this a genuine hunger strike or a ruse to get him into a less secure facility so he could stage another escape? We can't be sure. But what we do know is that Joe summoned Bishop Cox, Sinead O'Connor's pastor, who we met earlier, to tend to him. Last night, Bishop Michael Cox of the Latin Tridentine Church said that when he last saw Maloney, he looked like a skeleton. Mr Maloney told Bishop Cox, his chaplain, that he could not retain any food in his stomach and could only take liquids. He could not walk and could only be moved in a wheelchair. When brought to an outside hospital last week, he refused treatment. That's correct. I remember that. He really did refuse treatment. And the very words the nurse says, well, Michael, you're in our hospital and we're responsible for treating you. Do you know what he said? I roll over on my belly and cry like a baby. That's what he said, and, I'm, and you have my word on that. Imagine a grown man going over, rolling over on his tummy and crying like a baby. When the district attorney's office in Rochester heard that Joe had been taken out of prison and moved into a hospital, they panicked. We were told that, that he was, that was on the hunger strike, and at some point I think he was actually taken to hospital. Back in Rochester, prosecutor Wendy Lehman remembered that Joe had escaped from Rochester State Hospital in 1967, and she didn't want history repeating itself. Our feeling was always that, you know, they wanted to get to the hospital so he could escape again, um, but that, that didn't occur. Brought back to prison hospital and realising his plan was foiled, Joe Maloney began eating again, building his health back up for his next plan. By now, the Michael O'Shea persona was gone, and Joe was openly telling people that his wife had been killed. However, he sanitised the story for the likes of Bishop Cox. Uh, he told me, oh, he told me, yeah, he told me himself. He said that, he said he was uh, American, yeah. My understanding was that him and the wife over in America got drunk and when one of them wound up dead. In his conversations with Bishop Cox in Mountjoy Jail, Joe had a unique way of conversing with his pastor under the noses of the guards. Michael knew a fair bit of German. Don't ask me where he learned it, but we, we spoke and started to speak in German. Despite his tricks, the authorities weren't budging. And, in Rochester, the DA's office was waiting until all of Maloney's appeals were exhausted before they could extradite him. Throughout all of 1985, Joe was remanded in Mountjoy Prison. And by October, the High Court in Dublin refused to give Maloney bail for a second time. His options, it appeared, were running out. Meanwhile, 
outside prison, Joe's Irish wife, Sheila Chandler O'Shea, was not ready to give up support for her husband. The Irish woman he married 11 years ago has been at his side throughout the ordeal. She has refused to talk about the hearing or her husband's alleged criminal past. The evidence we've found during the making of Runaway Joe suggests Sheila had no idea that Michael O'Shea was Joe Maloney. While he was in prison, she began asking his friends if the allegations could possibly be true. Then when he got arrested, I got a letter from Sheila. This is Dr Brian Hanlon, Joe's friend, who we met in the last episode. Sheila had written to me in Canada wanting to know how long I knew him and if I knew what his background was. He was trying to figure out that he didn't really believe what they were charging him with. Yeah, and she stood by him, though. During the time Joe was in Mountjoy, Sheila also turned up at the home of Fiona Deverell, who we met in the last episode. And Sheila asked her parents if they could provide support and perhaps even speak up for her husband. Fiona recalls the story of Sheila coming to their house. Like in floods of tears, my mother said afterwards she really thought Sheila totally was blindsided by his arrest. She had no idea that he was Joe Maloney. She genuinely believed everything he had told her and she was distraught. She wanted my dad to buy one of the cars and and get some cash because she thought she would need money and she didn't really know what to do. She didn't know if she, I mean, imagine if you found out that your husband wasn't who he said he was. You probably wonder, am I legally married to this person? Am I going to be implicated into in what he has done? You know, how have I survived it as, as his wife when his first wife allegedly he murdered? Can you imagine what she was going through? I can't. My, my mother very much felt a lot of sympathy for her. While Sheila was another victim of Joe Maloney's, we've not been able to uncover any evidence of physical abuse. But Sergeant Laura Sweeney says that domestic abusers rarely stop. Domestic abuse lies with the abuser. So it lied with Joe. So it doesn't matter what relationship he was in. It doesn't matter actually who he met or how many relationships he would have. There would always be domestic abuse. If domestic abuse is in one relationship, it'll be in every single relationship that an offender has. As the common denominator is Joe. What we do know is that Sheila's life was ruined by Joe's behaviour. You know, when she realised what was happening, you know, what, you know, that I think it just completely destroyed her personality. You know, she wasn't a robust personality that way, you know, so, yeah. That's Peter Collins, Joe and Sheila's neighbour at Capard House, who had known Sheila since her youth. But I think for people like Sheila, who committed to him and gave him their all, he just took it up and it didn't come back to them. And that's tragic. I mean, that was the harm he did in life. Throughout 1985, while he was in prison, Joe Maloney continued to summon people who he thought might be able to help him, including Dr Hanlon, who visited him in Mountjoy Jail while on a visit home to Ireland from Canada. 
I just said, what's all this about? He says, I don't know. There's some mistake. And then he says, they're mixing me up with somebody else. He said, this is all false accusations. This isn't true. I have my lawyer working on it. I should have never been arrested because there wasn't a proper treaty signed between Ireland and the U.S. Joe was also preparing a legal strategy for his return to Rochester, which included the possibility of hiring one of the most powerful defence attorneys in upstate New York. Somebody in in Dublin must have called me, maybe from the Garda, and said that uh, a certain Rochester defence attorney was in Ireland and had gone to visit Maloney. Wendy Lehman, retired prosecutor. And um, that was Felix Lapine, who was a, a very prominent uh, defense attorney in Rochester. And then the Garda called and confirmed that he had, in fact, visited him. And I believe he'd taken some pictures, and the Garda had, had confiscated those pictures. So I never heard anything more about that. But clearly, O'Shea wanted the best. Mm-hmm. And, and Felix would have been the best, yeah. among the best, yeah. Aside from pursuing the legitimate legal route, Joe had not yet given up on leaving prison on his own terms. Although he only turned 50 in September 1985, he tried to convince his jailers that he was a frail old man. Although he suddenly perked up whenever he had a visitor. Shuffled around until uh, visit for you and he beat you to the visiting box. Boy, Jesus, oh, he was good and fit. Even now, Seven episodes into Runaway Joe, we're continuing to meet people who have new information to tell us about Joe Maloney. I'm at Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, and we've managed to track down two retired prison guards with intimate knowledge of Joe's prison break. One of them, Sean Reynolds, now curates a small museum at the prison. That escape was very, very clever. Having previously tried and failed to break out of prison, then going on a two-month hunger strike, Joe Maloney was about to make a third-time lucky attempt at getting out of Mountjoy for good. He was sharing a cell with a younger man. He paid the younger man to get him out of the prison. So the younger fellow was supposed to haul that out, and he agreed to that he would try and get him out. The day before the jailbreak, the younger man had apparently cut the receiver from the lock on the cell door, which prevented the door from locking. He managed to get a hacksaw blade on you or a piece of hacksaw blade and he cut a piece out of it. At 7.30pm, the inmates were locked in their cells. But the guards didn't know that Joe's cell door was unlocked. They got out of their cells and I don't know how they did it for very, very quick. They must have camouflaged the beds a bit like them. But that case in Alcatraz, they must have put pillows in the bed to confuse the staff because the staff checked the cells here every half hour. Joe and his cellmate were on C1, the ground floor. As soon as they were out, they went up the stairs. You have C1, C2 and C3. And above C3 then is the attic. So they managed to get into the attic through an old window. And once in the attic... They managed to get out onto the roof and they dropped down onto a kitchen roof. You, using this rope? Using this rope. Yeah. Now I'll show you the rope now. Sean pulls out a rope from a cabinet in Mountjoy's museum, the same rope Joe Maloney made out of bed sheets for his escape attempt. This hair was made from bed sheets. 
It's not very long, but long enough. He tore the sheet in, in, into strands and he managed to plait plat it together like a, a girl would, would plait her hair together. Four, about four and a half yards long. That's four and a half, that's nearly 13 foot long, which would have been plenty long. To get over a wall? Well, to get over, over the wall. At least that was the idea. Now Joe and his Irish cellmates were in the outer courtyard of the prison, not far from freedom. The younger man managed to get up onto an outer wall and he tried to pull Joe up using the rope made of bed sheets. He proceeded to try and pull him up. But sure, the man, 50 years of age, and the younger man wasn't able to take the weight of him. And that's when a night patrol officer turned the corner to find one convict on the wall and another, Joe Maloney, trying to climb up onto it. The night guard came around then because there's an officer in the grounds at night and he came across him. And the younger man was above on top of it and he was trying to pull that fellow at the yank up and he couldn't get him up. So the game was up then. So they had the, the older man was caught and the young man was going nowhere. Joe Maloney and his cellmate gave themselves up. By now, Joe had spent 15 months in prison. The next day, the story made front-page headlines in Irish newspapers. Evening Press, April 14th, 1986. Murder suspect in jailbreak bid. A man facing extradition on charges of murdering his wife failed in an attempt to break out of Mountjoy Jail early today. An internal investigation was underway in Mountjoy to establish how the two prisoners got out of the cell block without being noticed. The story spread back to Rochester, where Howard Raylan, the district attorney, was shocked by the news. It further demonstrates the nature of this defendant, Raylan said. Joseph Maloney obviously doesn't want to come back here and face a trial. After a hunger strike and two escape attempts from prison, the Irish authorities were not about to take any more risks. Rochester Democrat and Herald, April 24th, 1986. Irish transfer Maloney to top security prison. Joseph M. Maloney, a suspect in the poisoning death of his wife in Rochester, has been transferred to a top security Irish prison that holds only terrorists in the Irish Republican Army. Maloney fighting extradition to the United States was taken under heavy guard to Port Lease Prison after his second unsuccessful escape attempt, April 14th, from Dublin's Mountjoy Prison. Joe Maloney was back in County Leash, in Ireland's only maximum security prison, Port Leash. Just a few miles away from Capard House, his stately home, which was now facing bankruptcy, and a half-hour drive from his mother's home, where he spent time in his youth on trips from Rochester. Within this high-security prison, Joe's days of roaming wild and free seemed over. He was finally going to be held accountable for his alleged murder of June Fisk. In Rochester, FBI agent Gene Harding was waiting for the call from authorities in Ireland so he could notify the U.S. Marshals. Who are responsible for transporting federal prisoners. They would have gone over and maybe even a Rochester police detective or one of the law enforcement agencies. They would have transported him back to the United States to the Western District of New York. He would have gone to the Monroe County Jail 
at that point, uh, the Monroe County District Attorney's Office and the local police would have taken over that particular case, and we would drop our unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant. That's the normal procedure. While Joe was in prison, U.S. authorities were trying to extradite several other Americans from Ireland. While some of them were successfully brought back to the U.S., one of them challenged the extradition treaty on the grounds that the Irish government hadn't acted correctly in funding the treaty, a legal technicality. On July the 24th, 1986, the Irish Supreme Court declared the extradition treaty between Ireland and the US as unconstitutional. The following day, Joe Maloney was brought to Dublin's High Court and released. Evening Herald, July 25th, 1986. An American businessman who spent a year and a half in jail here while moves were made to extradite him on a charge of murdering his wife 20 years ago was having his first taste of freedom today. Joseph Maloney was ordered to be released from prison. Everyone associated with this case, the FBI, the Guardie, the DA's office, June Fisk's family and friends, no one could believe that in the end, despite the years of watching Joe, tracking him, his repeated attempts at escape, the lifetime of effort that police authorities both in Ireland and the US had put into his capture and arrest, that in the end, it was institutional failure within the Irish government that corrupted justice and granted Joe Maloney his freedom. For the past 19 years, luck or fate has favoured Joe Maloney. An Irish Supreme Court decision that averted his extradition to the United States and led to his release seemed to be one more stroke of luck for Maloney. Joe Maloney was prepared for this moment. His contingency plan, a plan he had been formulating since the moment of his arrest, kicked into place as soon as the High Court granted his release. Firstly, he hid in the High Court bathroom for a few hours to throw off any police outside who might wish to follow him. Then he emerged, and outside the court, waiting for him in a car, was Rod Fenning, son of Desmond, the record store owner in Dunleary, who Joe had befriended back in the 1970s. Joe had managed to convince Rod of his innocence, convince him that he wasn't the person everyone said he was. He took advantage of Rod's good faith, and Rod had fallen for it. Here's Pamela Fenning and her sister, Vanessa. He just disappeared out the door. Roderick was there with the car, and they just disappeared. He wasn't in prison. He had been brought to whichever court it was in Dublin, and the judge uh, said he was free to go, and Michael just got up. My brother met him outside. They got into a car, my brother's car, and they drove off, and nobody knew where they had gone. A source told us that Rod drove Michael to a harbour in South Dublin where Michael stepped onto a fishing boat, presumably in exchange for a sum of money. And from there, he was gone. In late 1967, early 68, Joe Maloney had arrived in Ireland on a boat, a fugitive on the run. Now, in 1986, he was leaving Ireland in exactly the same manner. Joe Maloney's adventures in Ireland were over. There was outrage in the Irish government over the treaty collapsing, 
and Joe Maloney being freed. The treaty, despite the fanfares, was not in Irish law worth the paper it was written on. That's Fianna Fáil politician Michael Woods, whose words were notated from a debate in the Dáil following the treaty's collapse. He's voiced here by our colleague. Michael O'Shea, who's wanted for murder, was released on the direction of the Supreme Court. The government had got it wrong again, and Ireland was seen abroad as a haven for fugitives from justice. These cases did not involve the overtones or complexities of political offences. They are straightforward criminal charges. We must have effective means of dealing with them and of meeting our international obligations. And law enforcement in Rochester were particularly affected by the treaty's collapse. They'd seen years of hard work go down the drain. Retired prosecutor, Wendy Lehman. Well, it was really disappointing. Um, we wanted to bring justice for the victims and we, that's what we were trying to do and it seemed to be slipping away. Jean Harding, who was handling the case for the FBI in Rochester, was also disappointed by the news. I mean, when Maloney was released, it must have been very frustrating for you, was it? I mean, it had been on your table for six years. Yeah, it was. Uh, these things happen. You learn to live with them. Unfortunately, we wanted to bring justice for the family. And um, it felt pretty good, the fact that you know, he was in custody. Uh, no one saw that the fact that this treaty was going to unfold over a legal technicality, it's unfortunate uh, after all the work that was put into this particular case. And uh, not only by us, but by the Irish authorities. Joe Maloney, we believe, left Ireland with a considerable amount of money. While he was in custody, his wife Sheila had been gathering cash for either his defence, his release, or his escape. By the time when he got out of Mountjoy, he was gone from Ireland in a week. That's Dr. Brian Hanlon, Joe's friend who lived in Canada. So there had to be some privilege to work done. And the only one who could have done that was she on the outside. If you recall from the last episode, in the years leading up to the extradition treaty being passed in 1984, Michael and Sheila had been selling off assets and houses, including the property in Castletown, which Annette Sullivan purchased. Do you remember how much it, it cost, how much you paid for it? 50, 50 to 60,000. Then there was the property on Three Kent Terrace in Dalkey, which Sheila had bought from her aunt in 1983 for a bargain 15,000 Irish punts which Michael, a.k.a. Joe Maloney, proceeded to renovate. I'm back with a neighbour on Kent Terrace looking through the sale deeds. That's... That was in 1986, and uh, it says on that that it was 62,000. Um, if you could just have a look at the date where the deed was signed, the, the sale went through. Um, what, what date does it say there? 23rd day of July, 1986, is Here... when she sold sold on the property. Here's the incredible thing. He was released from prison when the extradition treaty fell through on the 24th. Crikey. Okay, the day after. What an incredible bit of luck. Yes, yes. So, Joe Maloney may have had a hundred thousand Irish pounds or more with him when he left Ireland 
on the run again. In today's money, that's the equivalent of Joe going on the run with about half a million euros. Enough, perhaps, to last a lifetime. Back in Rochester, with Joe Maloney now a free man, the nightmare continued for June's family and her friend, Wanda. Mm-hmm. I wonder what happened to Joe. Absolutely. When they caught him in Ireland, I thought, oh my God, you got to be kidding. They finally got him. And then they lost him again. How, how idiotic is that? This story boils down to a woman who was killed. Right. And that, you know, gets sometimes lost in all the other proceedings. Wendy Lehman. As I said before, that's what prosecutors do. They seek justice for the victim, and that has to always be kept in the forefront of any investigation, any process. Um, And that's what we were trying to do and would still try to do if given the um, opportunity. About eight months after Joe was released from prison, in February 1987, the extradition treaty between Ireland and the US was made valid again. However, by then it was too late. No trace of Joe could be found. His whereabouts were unknown. Not long after Joe left, his third wife, Dubliner Sheila Chandler, followed him. In Ireland, Her father, Vincent, refused to assist authorities. Vincent's words, which he told a reporter, are voiced here by our colleague. I do not know where Maloney is, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you. We are not telling anybody. We don't believe he did what they say. I don't care what the witnesses from Rochester said. They are going to have to live with their consciences. Rod Fanning, meanwhile, wouldn't even tell his sisters what he knew about Joe Maloney's whereabouts. Roger wouldn't discuss Michael with any of us. My brother would have taken secrets to the grave. Rod, in fact, did take whatever knowledge he had of Joe Maloney to the grave, as he sadly died in 2019. But as we've said throughout this whole series, someone always knows something. We're confident that we've finally been able to piece together the movements of Joe Maloney since he left Ireland. And that's where we're going in our next episode. Episode 8 land of reinvention. Ah, you know, rumours, huh? That's how people communicate here. Well, it's fascinating that you recognise the face. Both of us. I told you, I will not tell him. And he showed the same picture. As this is a live investigation, if you have any knowledge of Joseph Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, please contact us immediately and in confidence via documentaries at rte.ie. Runaway Joe is written, reported and produced by me, Pavel Barter and Tim Desmond. Production assistance by Nicolene Greer. Music is by Martin Kluzak and Tomasz Barrow. The sound engineer is Patter Carney. And the executive producer for RTE Documentary on One is Liam O'Brien. <laughs>